This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. Well, I guess fall is officially here. I have to say there is no one more reluctant than I am to say goodbye to summer. Being out in the sun in the middle of my native gardens is where I always long to be most. I guess it's time to start planning for next summer, right? I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be discussing how important it is to leave your gardens alone in the fall. We'll also be talking about the new buzz phrase, forest blocks. Finally, we'll be talking with a New Hampshire legislator who is trying to protect marine life. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. It may be fall, which traditionally would make everyone think about cleaning up the yard. But new findings in the native gardening field are calling for minimal futzing around with trees and plants. It's extremely important not to deadhead your flowering plants. Those dried up seed heads can save the lives of many a hungry migrating bird as they come through your yard on their way south. Many native gardeners are now waiting until the following spring to remove and clean up flower stems, waiting until late spring or until ground temperature reaches 50 degrees so as not to disturb insects overwintering inside the stems. The same goes for trimming any shrubs that provide berries in the fall and winter. Again, those berries can sustain starving birds during blizzards and ice storms. It also helps to stay out of your yard and garden and keep noise levels down during migration period so you aren't scaring off migrating birds who need the nuts, seeds, and berries you are providing on your property. Also, leave the leaves. Allow leaves to decompose in your yard so they can revitalize the soil and feed the trees. Also, avoid shredding your leaves as butterflies and moths often overwinter inside those curled up leaves. Try to keep activity to a minimum. This includes digging in your yard. Keep in mind that bumblebee queens nest underground as early as August. A nest that is disrupted could result in an entire colony of bumblebees being lost the following spring. Fall is also the time to check your yard for Asian jumping worms. Perhaps the greatest threat to our forests and watersheds is the Asian jumping worm. Shipped from Asia for decades and sold as baitworms for fishing, this worm voraciously consumes the vital top layer of the soil in your yard, damaging trees and plants and leaving behind a distorted soil composition that can render entire woodland areas sterile. This top layer, often referred to as the duff layer, is the highly nutritious and spongy top three inches of soil that tree seedlings need to become established. 
According to Professor Joseph H. Gores, a plant and soil scientist at the University of Vermont, Asian jumping worms are a true danger to our New England woodlands since they permanently damage the soil, bringing the growth of forests to a halt and preventing everything from insects and salamanders to turtles and birds from finding the food they need to survive. While scientists and state officials grapple with the best way forward on this menace, you can prevent the spread of Asian jumping worms by avoiding the purchase of bagged topsoil and mulch. State authorities are claiming they are often spread by infested products sold at some conventional garden centers. Be wary of any topsoil brought to your property by landscapers as well as any fill used for construction. Make your own soil with a composter and use leaves for mulch. Also be careful at any local plant swap events. The safest way to avoid Asian jumping worms is to buy only natives and to buy them from trusted local growers that raise their seedlings on site so they know the origin of their soil medium. To be even safer, buy only bare root tree and plant seedlings since these plants have no soil attached. Okay, and now let's talk about the new buzz phrase for this year. It's forest blocks. What exactly is that? There has been a great deal of concern expressed by conservationists about forest cover and its integrity. Large portions of forest or forest blocks are disappearing at a very fast rate, particularly in New England. For example, the U.S. Forest Service is reporting that the state of Vermont has lost tens of thousands of acres of forest land in the last dozen years. Experts are saying this usually begins as rural sprawl. This starts when the occasional house starts to appear on deeply forested rural roads. Then, after several years, you see close to a dozen small homes on the same road. These homeowners start asking for better roads with heavier salting during the winter, which kills trees along the side of the road. Then they request improved Wi-Fi and electricity, and the electric companies come in and start cutting down thousands of trees and applying massive amounts of herbicide to facilitate more electric lines and cable hookups. Slowly but steadily, huge expanses of unbroken tree cover are eroded. Legislators are attempting to protect and preserve forest blocks. Vermont passed the Forest Integrity Act, also known as the Forest Blocks Act. It requires towns to identify and protect large forested areas from fragmentation. This becomes an even more serious problem when a homeowner purchases 50 or 100 acres and cuts a long winding driveway through the property, placing their house at the very back of the wooded parcel. This type of building plan can be devastating to wildlife. It's one thing to build a small house along the edge of the road. It's another issue entirely when 100 acres is segmented by constant human activity. Long driveways destroy precious wildlife corridors that allow wildlife to move freely between foraging grounds, breeding habitats, and wintering areas. Human dwellings introduce noise, exhaust from vehicles, smoke from chimneys, cats and dogs that kill birds and small mammals, windows that kill birds, along with pesticides and herbicides, and need I say, Asian jumping worms, to what was once a quiet and peaceful forest habitat. The research is showing that a pristine forest habitat can show evidence of supporting 32 wildlife species or more. This includes broadwing hawks, owls, mammals, salamanders, and other creatures. 
Compare that to 20 acres that has been chopped into 21-acre parcels, which supports seven species or less. Keep in touch with your select board and local state legislators. Let them know about your concern for preserving forest blocks. And push for legislation that identifies and protects large forested areas. And now let's talk about State Representative Greg Hill and his efforts to get a bill passed that will protect marine life along the New Hampshire coastline. He has been hard at work trying to get House Bill 442 passed, a bill that would help put an end to the senseless killing of marine life. According to scientists, each year thousands of fish, crabs, lobsters, and other marine animals get caught inside derelict lobster traps and are left to die. His bill aims to put volunteer scuba divers to work, marking these traps for removal and releasing the trapped animals. It should be noted here that the New Hampshire Commercial Fishermen's Association could not be reached for comment. And now I'd like to introduce Representative Greg Hill. Mr. Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, this is great to have you on the show. So now could you tell our listeners, you're a state representative in New Hampshire. Can you tell them what county and what district, please? I am uh, Merrimack County, and I am listed as Merrimack District 2, which uh, is the town of Northfield. Great. In the introduction, I touched on the issue of the uh, derelict gear in the ocean and what you're trying to do about it. Could you tell our listeners what... What is it that drew you to this issue? Why are you trying to help? It starts from the part part of this uh, journey that I've been on as a scuba diver. My son and I uh, became licensed, uh, I guess, around 2011 or so. Got hooked up with a whole bunch of really nice, interesting people from all walks of life. All of them seem to have one thing in common. They are conservationists. Uh, they are environmentalists and yet they're underappreciated. And so uh, it was with them, in conjunction with them, that we filed the legislation to uh, to see if we could do something about the piles and piles of derelict fishing gear that uh, so far has remained untouched in New Hampshire waters. When you say derelict gear, you're not just talking about lobster traps that are abandoned. You're also talking about commercial fishing nets that are getting caught on something and being left behind? We don't see as much of that, given the the depths that uh, recreational scuba divers go. And usually some of the large trawling nets that you're talking about, those are in deeper waters. But they do get caught on things and they do need to be uh, addressed. I have no problem thinking of all of it as a... uh, contamination and all of it is being needed to uh, be addressed and and cleaned up. Right. So now Noah is saying 10% of all lobster traps end up lost somehow. What does that translate into numbers-wise for the seacoast of New Hampshire? Well, if you just go by the pure numbers, uh, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 110,000 traps that were issued for this past season. So 10% of that would mean 11,000 or so that get lost. That is a bone of contention with the lobstermen. They don't believe that it's accurate to say 10% of their traps uh, get lost. But it seems to be a, um, a fairly uniform 
percentage that uh, is used both by NOAA and every other state that I've run into, that 10% seems to be a, uh, a fairly consistent percentage. Now, you wrote a very hard-hitting op-ed for a New Hampshire newspaper. What was the response from the lobstermen to that? Pretty much it just came down to balderdash. They dispute the uh, the numbers that we've come up with. And and quite frankly, I'm, I'm not arguing the numbers. I'm, um, I'm just saying that regardless of whether it's 10% of the traps that are lost or 5% or 1%, there are lobster traps that recreational divers run into on a constant basis. I don't believe you could take a dive in any of the recreational diving areas without running into derelict fishing traps, uh, lobster traps or fishing gear. So I think regardless of what their dispute is with the article that I wrote, the fact remains that those traps do exist out there and uh, they got there somehow. Right. And just to be clear for our listeners now, when you talk about marine life that's being imperiled by these abandoned lobster traps, what is it that the divers are finding? This was brought to us. There's a group in Maine, and Maine has been very good at accumulating quite a few different areas, whether it's lobstermen, whether it's uh, environmentalists, and even their equivalent of the fish and game to clean up Maine waters. And in testimony from the fellow, the, the nonprofit that works in Maine, he says roughly 60 to 66 percent of the traps that they bring up from the surface that are derelict traps contain live animals. In New Hampshire, if we still stay with that 11,000 lost traps that we've calculated, that works out to about 7,600 or so marine animals that will be sacrificed this year just based on the traps that were lost this year. These traps last for years and years, so uh, the, the actual number is, uh, is much larger. We just don't know. Right. So the idea is by uh, ridding the ocean of these abandoned fishing nets and lobster traps, I imagine with the nets, you're saving whales, you're saving dolphins and sea turtles. And then when you get to lobster traps, what are some of the animals that are being caught in these lobster traps? Well, I can show you some of these pictures that we've come across and we showed to the House and Senate committees. That is a lobster, fairly large lobster that's inside one of these derelict lobster traps. Can't get out because of its size. Uh, the panel that shows there that's still intact would prevent that lobster from coming out of that trap. That's one. I can show you a fairly large there's a cod that's stuck inside that trap. Both those animals will die. And the sad thing is when they die, they become bait for the next generation that go in to uh, grab that those dead animals as uh, food, and then they get trapped. And so the cycle continues over and over again. But it is much beyond just lobsters. It is... Uh, You'll find anything in, in these, um, a lot of fish, a lot of lobsters, a lot of crabs. It's basically a, uh, a grocery store for, uh, for the bottom feeders. Yeah, and absolutely needless. Absolutely needless, right. which made it so difficult for us when we were trying to negotiate with the Senate in the committees of conference to say, 
Well, while this bill was sent to um, the fishing game for a report, what would be the harm in allowing the divers who are already in the water and who are volunteers, why wouldn't we allow the divers to at least open up the derelict traps that they find and release the animals? What possibly could be the harm in that? And the Senate refused based on the uh, belief of the uh, lobstermen that that would create a slippery slope where then they would go and release any lobsters in any of their traps, whether they are uh, derelict or not. We also asked during this time period when the uh, report is being filed by uh, Fish and Game, whether the volunteer divers could just mark where those buoys, where by buoys, by attaching buoys to the lobster pots, just so we could see where they are. Again, the Senate refused. We're basically losing a year with animals being sacrificed while divers could be doing things to uh, either release them or uh, or identify where the, the mounds and mounds of, uh, of lobster traps are. Now, you're talking about House Bill 442, correct? Correct. Now, are you one of the authors of the bill? I am. Okay. The bill originally was um, was set up so that we would uh, allow divers access to the natural resource, the New Hampshire natural resource, and allow them to uh, recreationally catch lobsters by hand. A, a limited number, three, was the limit. At the same time, uh, we were approached and asked if we would... Um, include some of this information about cleaning up, which immediately the divers grabbed onto and said that, yes, absolutely, that should be part of this bill. So we've had conversations for, I think this is maybe the third time that we filed this same legislation. And each time we get a little closer and then we fall apart in the Senate. The Senate refuses to to even consider such a thing. I was just going to say, it's not like it's a new trend that hasn't been tested before. There are several states along the New England coastline that are already doing this and have been doing it for several years, correct? Pretty much all of them. The last one that I know filed the legislation and funded it was Connecticut, and that was in 2018. But uh, New Hampshire is is well behind the curve on this one. We are late to the game and uh, and still we're waiting for a report from our fishing game, which presumably will tell us everything that all the other states already know. Right. So uh, what is what are your hopes going forward now? Will you be submitting the bill again or? <laughs> I think I'm going to have to, although the difficult timing wise we have, the difficulty we have is that our New legislation has to be filed in September, and this report by Fish and Game is due September 30th. So whether I file a piece of legislation as just a placeholder, that may be one thing. We will be anxiously looking at what Fish and Game decides to put in their report. At any rate, I'm certain there's going to be gaps and suggestions that the divers and uh the majority of the House members, this was a overwhelming bipartisan support. I think it might be the bill that had the most bipartisan support of all the legislation that we filed this year. 
so I think there'll undoubtedly be some kind of a, of a bill. I don't know what it will be at this point. It will be contingent upon what the fishing game decides to do. Well, I have to say it's a great bill. You know, it defends and protects natural resources. It prevents suffering of wildlife. And you've already got volunteers in place who are willing to remove them for nothing. It just sounds like a slam dunk to me. <laughs> well, we thought so, too. We thought it was a slam dunk. We had actually the, the nonprofit fellow, uh, Buzz Scott, who does this work in, in Maine and in Massachusetts. And he uh, said, I'd be thrilled to be able to plug the holes and be able to do this same thing in New Hampshire. He came down twice at his own expense and put himself up in a hotel uh, so that he could testify. So there are people willing to do this and wanting to do this, according to our lobstermen. Right. Well, would you be willing to uh, come on the show again to, to let us know what happens with uh, the next year's? <laughs> I'd be next thrilled year's bill to. Submission. Um, that would be great. So I'm sure there will be some type of legislation and I'm happy to return and explain what it is, where the holes are and what we can perhaps do about it together. That is great. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining the show today. We really appreciate it. It's good to be up to date on what's going on. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.